Hello and welcome back to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with our new book, Post Scarcity Anarchism by Murray Bookchin, and we're going to finish off the first chapter, which we did most of last week, and then go into the next one. One quick reminder that this book separately numbers footnotes and citations, so I'll be separately calling those out, and those are both in the show notes under different headers. But then, let's start. Prospect. The most important process going on in America today is the sweeping deinstitutionalization of the bourgeois social structure. A basic, far-reaching disrespect and a profound disloyalty are developing toward the values, the forms, the aspirations, and, above all, the institutions of the established order. On a scale unprecedented in American history, millions of people are shedding their commitment to the society in which they live. They no longer believe in its claims. They no longer respect its symbols. They no longer accept its goals. And most significantly, they refuse almost intuitively to live by its institutional and social codes. This growing refusal runs very deep. It extends from an opposition to war into a hatred of political manipulation in all its forms. Starting from a rejection of racism, it brings into question the very existence of hierarchical power as such. In its detestation of middle-class values and lifestyles, it rapidly evolves into a rejection of the commodity system. From an irritation with environmental pollution, it passes into a rejection of the American city and modern urbanism. In short, it tends to transcend every particularistic critique of the society and to evolve into a generalized opposition to the bourgeois order on an ever-broadening scale. In this respect, the period in which we live closely resembles the revolutionary enlightenment that swept through France in the 18th century, a period that completely reworked French consciousness and prepared the conditions for the Great Revolution of 1789. Then, as now, the old institutions were slowly pulverized by molecular action from below long before they were toppled by mass revolutionary action. This molecular movement creates an atmosphere of general lawlessness, a growing, personal, day-to-day disobedience, a tendency not to go along with the existing system, a seemingly petty but nevertheless critical attempt to circumvent restriction in every facet of daily life. The society, in effect, becomes disorderly, undisciplined, Dionysian, a condition that reveals itself most dramatically in an increasing rate of official crimes. A vast critique of the system develops. The actual enlightenment itself, two centuries ago, and the sweeping critique that exists today, which seeps downward and accelerates the molecular movement at the base, be it an angry gesture, a riot, or a conscious change in lifestyle an ever-increasing number of people, who have no more of a commitment to an organized revolutionary movement than they have to society itself, 
begin spontaneously to engage in their own defiant propaganda of the deed. In its concrete details, the disintegrating social process is nourished by many sources. The process develops with all the unevenness, indeed with all the contradictions, that mark every revolutionary trend. In 18th century France, radical ideology oscillated between a rigid scientism and a sloppy romanticism. Notions of freedom were anchored in a precise, logical ideal of self-control, and also a vague, instinctive norm of spontaneity. Rousseau stood at odds with Dolbach, Diderot at odds with Voltaire, yet in retrospect we can see that one not only transcended but also presupposed the other in a cumulative development toward revolution. The same uneven, contradictory, and cumulative development exists today, and in many cases it follows a remarkably direct course. The beat movement created the most important breach in the solid, middle-class values of the 1950s, a breach that was widened enormously by the illegalities of pacifists, civil rights workers, draft resistors, and long hairs. Moreover, the merely reactive response of rebellious American youth has produced invaluable forms of libertarian and utopian affirmation. The right to make love without restriction, the goal of community, the disavowal of money and commodities, the belief in mutual aid, and a new respect for spontaneity. Easy as it is for revolutionaries to criticize certain pitfalls within this orientation of personal and social values, the fact remains that it has played a preparatory role of decisive importance in forming the present atmosphere of indiscipline, spontaneity, radicalism, and freedom. A second parallel between the revolutionary enlightenment and our own period is the emergence of the crowd, the so-called mob, as a major vehicle of social protest. The typical institutionalized forms of public dissatisfaction, in our own day they are orderly elections, demonstrations, and mass meetings, tend to give way to direct action by crowds. This shift from predictable, highly organized protests within the institutionalized framework of the existing society to sporadic, spontaneous, near-insurrectionary assaults from outside and even against socially acceptable forms reflects a profound change in popular psychology. The rioter has begun to break, however partially and intuitively, with those deep-seated norms of behavior which traditionally welded the masses to the established order. He actively sheds the internalized structure of authority, the long-cultivated body of conditioned reflexes, and the pattern of submission sustained by guilt that tie one to the system even more effectively than any fear of police violence and juridical reprisal. Contrary to the views of social psychologists who see in these modes of direct action the submission of the individual to a terrifying collective entity called the mob, 
The truth is that riots and crowd actions represent the first gropings of the mass towards individuation. The mass tends to become demassified in the sense that it begins to assert itself against the really massifying automatic responses produced by the bourgeois family, the school, and the mass media. By the same token, crowd actions involve the rediscovery of the streets and the effort to liberate them. Ultimately, it is in the streets that power must be dissolved, for the streets where daily life is endured, suffered and eroded, and where power is confronted and fought, must be turned into the domain where daily life is enjoyed, created and nourished. The rebellious crowd marked the beginning not only of a spontaneous transmutation of public into social revolt, but also of a return from the abstractions of social revolt to the issues of everyday life. Finally, as in the Enlightenment, we are seeing the emergence of an immense and ever-growing stratum of déclassé, a body of lumpenized individuals drawn from every stratum of society. The chronically indebted and socially insecure middle classes of our period compare loosely with the chronically insolvent and flighty nobility of pre-revolutionary France. A vast flotsam of educated people emerged then, as now, living at loose ends without fixed careers or established social roots. At the bottom of both structures, we find a large number of chronic poor. Vagabonds, drifters, people with part-time jobs or no jobs at all, threatening unruly sans-culottes, surviving on public aid and on the garbage thrown off by society. The poor of the Parisian slums, the blacks of the American ghettos. But here all the parallels end. The French Enlightenment belongs to a period of revolutionary transition from feudalism to capitalism, both societies based on economic scarcity, class rule, exploitation, social hierarchy, and state power. The day-to-day -day popular resistance which marked the 18th century and culminated in open revolution was soon disciplined by the newly emerging industrial order, as well as by naked force. The vast mass of déclassé and sans-culottes was largely absorbed into the factory system and tamed by industrial discipline. Formerly rootless intellectuals and footloose nobles found secure places in the economic, political, social and cultural hierarchy of the new bourgeois order. From a socially and culturally fluid condition, highly generalized in its structure and relations, society hardened again into rigid, particularized class and institutional forms. The classical Victorian era appeared not only in England, but, to one degree or another, in all of Western Europe and America. Critique was consolidated into apologia, revolt into reform, déclassé into clearly defined classes and mobs into political constituencies. Riots became the well-behaved processionals we call demonstrations, and spontaneous direct action turned into electoral rituals. Our own era is also a transitional one, 
but with a profound and new difference. In the last of their great insurrections, the Saint-Coulant of the French Revolution rose under the fiery cry, Bread and the Constitution of 93. The black Saint-Coulant of the American ghettos rise under the slogan, Black is Beautiful. Between these two slogans lies a development of unprecedented importance. The déclassés of the 18th century were formed during a slow transition from an agricultural to an industrial era. They were created out of a pause in the historical transition from one regime of toil to another. The demand for bread could have been heard at any time in the evolution of propertied society. The new déclassé of the 20th century are being created as a result of the bankruptcy of all social forms based on toil. They are the end products of the process of propertied society itself and of the social problems of material survival. In the era when technological advances and cybernation have brought into question the exploitation of man by man, toil, and material want in any form whatever, the cry, black is beautiful, or make love not war, marks the transformation of the traditional demand for survival into a historically new demand for life. Footnote 18. What underpins every social conflict in the United States today is the demand for the realization of all human potentialities in a fully rounded, balanced, totalistic way of life. In short, the potentialities for revolution in America are now anchored in the potentialities of man himself. What we are witnessing is the breakdown of a century and a half of embourgeoisment and a pulverization of all bourgeois institutions at a point in history when the boldest concepts of utopia are realizable and there is nothing that the present bourgeois order can substitute for the destruction of its traditional institutions but bureaucratic manipulation and state capitalism. This process is unfolding most dramatically in the United States. Within a period of little more than two decades, we have seen the collapse of the American dream, or what amounts to the same thing, the steady destruction in the United States of the myth that material abundance, based on commodity relations between men, can conceal the inherent poverty of bourgeois life. Whether this process will culminate in revolution or in annihilation will depend in great part on the ability of revolutionists to extend social consciousness and defend the spontaneity of the revolutionary development from authoritarian ideologies, both of the left and of the right. Ecology and Revolutionary Thought In almost every period since the Renaissance, the development of revolutionary thought has been heavily influenced by a branch of science, often in conjunction with a school of philosophy. Astronomy in the time of Copernicus and Galileo helped to change a sweeping movement of ideas from the medieval world riddled by superstition, into one pervaded by a critical rationalism and openly naturalistic and humanistic in outlook. During the Enlightenment, the era that culminated in the French Revolution, 
this liberatory movement of ideas was reinforced by advances in mechanics and mathematics. The Victorian era was shaken to its very foundations by evolutionary theories in biology and anthropology, by Marx's contributions to political economy, and by Freudian psychology. In our own time, we have seen the assimilation of these once liberatory sciences by the established social order. Indeed, we have begun to regard science itself as an instrument of control over the thought processes and physical being of man. This distrust of science and of the scientific method is not without justification. Quote, Many sensitive people, especially artists, observes Abraham Maslow, are afraid that science besmirches and depresses, that it tears things apart rather than integrating them, thereby killing rather than creating. Citation 7 What is perhaps equally important, modern science has lost its critical edge. Largely functional or instrumental in intent, the branches of science that once tore at the chains of man are now used to perpetuate and gild them. Even philosophy has yielded to instrumentalism and tends to be little more than a body of logical contrivances. It is the handmaiden of the computer rather than of the revolutionary. There is one science, however, that may yet restore and even transcend the liberatory estate of the traditional sciences and philosophies. It passes rather loosely under the name ecology, a term coined by Haeckel a century ago to denote, quote, the investigation of the total relations of the animal both to its inorganic and to its organic environment, end quote. Citation 8. At first glance, Haeckel's definition is innocuous enough, and ecology narrowly conceived of as one of the biological sciences is often reduced to a variety of biometrics in which field workers focus on food chains and statistical studies of animal populations. There is an ecology of health that would hardly offend the sensibilities of the American Medical Association, and a concept of social ecology that would conform to the most well-engineered notions of the New York City Planning Commission. Broadly conceived of, however, ecology deals with the balance of nature. Inasmuch as nature includes man, the science basically deals with the harmonization of nature and man. The explosive implications of an ecological approach arise not only because ecology is intrinsically a critical science, critical on a scale that the most radical systems of political economy have failed to attain, but also because it is an integrative and reconstructive science. This integrative, reconstructive aspect of ecology, carried through to all its implications, leads directly into anarchic ideas of social thought. For, in the final analysis, it is impossible to achieve a harmonization of man and nature without creating a human community that lives in a lasting balance with its natural environment. And that's going to do it for this episode. We will be continuing with this chapter next week. 
If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find lots of his work at soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts, as well as go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network there as well. You get even more podcasts for your money there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.